Tracy Johnstone wanted to get into academics. Instead, she found plenty of teaching opportunities with McDonald's. Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I am joined by Tracy, who talks about her more than three-decade career as an owner-operator of McDonald's franchises. Tracy has been an enthusiastic ambassador for McDonald's restaurants for years and was fully intent on continuing until a cancer diagnosis last year led to her decision to sell her restaurants, which are all in Florida. She initially planned to go into academia before she married the son of a McDonald's operator and ultimately became fully immersed in the system. After surviving the chain's long approval process and realizing that she was good at and enjoyed making money. She talks about that and about the challenges of being a woman in a male-dominated business of operating restaurants. She talks about how much the business has changed over the years, how it's gotten better, and how it's become more challenging. This is a great interview with a pleasant and longtime operator from the world's biggest restaurant chain. So please have a listen. Okay, I am talking with Tracy Johnstone. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me today. All right. So tell uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved in the McDonald's system? Yeah, I married into the system, as we call it, within the McDonald's world. Um, so my husband's father opened the first restaurant here back in the early 60s. Um, I married into the restaurant business, had no intention of being into the restaurant business, considered myself an academic, if you will, and then quickly realized that when you're a franchisee, especially when the McDonald's brand, it is a family business by default. There's really no other way to approach owning multiple units within the McDonald's system. So came into the business back then. They still call it this somewhat, but it was the spousal approval program. So the assumption was the majority of the franchisees were men, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Kevin O'Brien's mom, uh, one of our friends in the system, his mom was the first woman franchisee. But the majority of the women uh, who were in the system were spouses. And that process then was, was an arduous process. It wasn't clearly defined. So I went through the spousal pro- program. Um, I tell people that I finished my my master's in the interim and still wasn't approved as an operator. So it's not easy, but in a good way. Of course, now I can have, you know, I give that value. I give that credit. Um, you had to learn how to run restaurants, not just own them. And that is that sweet spot to me, you know, harkens back to the Ray Kroc piece of you need to be an operator, um, not just just a business owner. So came into the system and as that time evolved and it's, you know, just like typical for many women, as the children got older, I became more and more involved. My husband, you know, feels like he's done this since birth. So he was more than happy to have me take some of those reins um, within the restaurants. And so I did that. Um, Loved operations. That's how I came in by definition is operating restaurants. But then learned I loved the backside of things and I loved the people side of things. I was able to get my academics self out a little bit because this is about teaching people and building culture. Um, And that was my sweet spot. And then I got good at making money. I got good at figuring out margins and how to make money um, and how to make things work uh, and just really realized I had a passion for this industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to back up a little bit. You were you said you were an academic and you actually got your master's degree when you does that. What what did you think you were going to do? Um, I think at that point, you know, I was so immersed in the world of academia and finishing my BA at Florida State and then, you know, immediately realized I felt a little panic stricken at not being a student. So I went right into a master's <laughs> program after that. Um, and then teaching, which I did. I taught for about 11 years as an adjunct professor at, at Gulf Coast State College. 
um, just assumed I would teach and I honestly do my PhD. It just seems a natural byproduct of who I am. So I did my PhD in hamburgerology, as they call it. Um, and, and the rest is history as it relates to that. So, um, but just in that area of developing people and learning and growing and creating systems and routines. But I found a place and a way to do that within restaurants. Um, and that was very fulfilling to me. Mm-hmm. So you said it was a spousal approval process. What kind of process was that? What did they make you do? Um, well, the first day I was a crew person. Um, so you come in and you learn all the stations and then you learn how to manage a shift and then you learn how to manage a restaurant. Um, you learn how to run a PNL uh, for better or worse. You're not all that great at it at first. Um, and then you learn how to supervise multiple restaurants. Um, and there's a whole backside of that, which is the back office side, obviously, the marketing, um, you know, the finances. Um, they really have you educate yourself in you know, this used and abused term of being holistic, but it really is a very holistic approach to becoming an operator under that spousal approval program. Now they have a next gen or, you know, Gen X. Um, they have a next gen program as well. So, yeah, it's a pretty fine tuned instrument now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I tend to think that's one of the better things about McDonald's historically is that it, it really should be very hard to become a franchisee. Because it was. Yeah. You're the representing the brand, right? I mean, you're the ones on the ground doing stuff and it really should be hard to get to that particular level. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a given. And there, there are no golden spoons in McDonald's. It is not a given. Whether you're a next generation or a spouse, it's not a given. And it shouldn't be. You know, it mm-hmm. shouldn't be. Was there a point? So you said that, um, you know, you got more involved in the business once, uh, you know, once your kids got older. What, what mm-hmm. point, when, when was that? And uh, when, when did you realize that you really like this? This is what I really wanted to do kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been one of those folks that I always wondered what I would do when I would grow up, you know, as of mm-hmm. yesterday kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that energy of that. But I think I really knew that this was what I wanted to do and it was a calling and it was what what I was good at um, was probably, you know, in the 80s, um, in the 80s is when I really realized this is what I'm going to do. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not just doing this as a fill in. You know, this really is what I want to do. And I tend to be an all in or nothing kind of person. So um, I went all in and just really loved learning the business. Um, And then I think the part that was sustaining for me beyond that is becoming a member back then of the Women's Operator Network. And that is really the catalyst of when I understood I didn't I wasn't just going to always be Tim's wife, the spouse. Mm -hmm. I could be Tracy Johnstone, the McDonald's franchisee and have that seat at that table and that credibility. And that Women's Operator Network was really the support system and the catalyst for me realizing this can really be who I am. I'm not an accessory or ancillary to something else. So becoming involved in that. Um, and then, you know, right before we transitioned out of the system a few months ago um, was the, the incoming chair of the National Women's Operator Network. So a spot that I remember sitting in the back row, looking at the woman standing on the stage in that role and thinking, I, I will I ever be her? Can I be her? Um, was just in awe of that leadership. Um, and here I am, you know, here I was. We're, we're in that same in that same role. So what a powerful organization that is for the women in McDonald's. Right. How many um, was there? I mean, at the time in the 80s, when you back then, was there were there a lot of women in the system? Um, no. So so no. And you said that most of them were were 
you know, brought on as spouses. Have that changed since then? It has changed some, uh, especially, you know, it seems like more of the registered applicants coming in. It's still, for the most part, again, to the credit, is it is still a family business. And so by definition, they're still spouses, but it's much more where they're traveling that road together instead of the spouse catching up. So I think there are more women um, now, for sure, than there used to be. And there's there are more, you know, the collaboration between those women and the continuity of work between those women um, is very powerful and meaningful within the McDonald's system. We're a diversity organization within the system. But really, uh, one of the the cornerstones of how we do business is what good do we do to the system as as a whole, Mm -hmm. not just women. Um, So we really wear a system hat and a hat representing the women as well. Mm -hmm. Was there any challenges to to, uh, being a woman operator at all that you feel that that might not have been faced by some of the men in the system at all? Or is any, Mm -hmm. any challenges that you had to face like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, when you go to a team meeting or whatever meeting, you know, the title is um, and there's 25 people in the room and it's you and one other woman, um, by definition, um, there's there's a sense of disparity there, obviously, in representation. Um, And you got some guys who've been doing this a long time who are big and loud um, and. (laughs) And what I learned when I captured that in in some writing I've been doing is I learned how to listen, you know, um, and and I learned how to how to um, to wait and make what I said meaningful and not have something to say just for the sake of saying it Um, and to really um, bring added value to that conversation to where instead of I'm the last one to wiggle my way in to speak, um, I am someone that's deferred to to want to know what they think. But it takes work. It's not a given. It's not a given. Even when you are on the team and in the door and sitting in the table, that doesn't mean that you're on par. You've still got to earn and work your way and create your own credibility um, to have a real voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that things have, have gotten any better on that front at all over the years? They're definitely better. There's always going to be work to do. Um, you know, read every headline that's on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Um, there's work to do in the, in the mm-hmm. area of diversity and inclusion. I don't think that will probably ever not be true in my lifetime for sure. Um, it's better, but some of the better is the women, women helping each other be better. Mm-hmm. Um, you need those those relationships and you need that backdoor behind closed door conversation with other women. Um, some of it's building confidence and some of it's just building sheer fortitude um, and that, you know, what doesn't, you know, break you, what doesn't kill you will break you thing. Um, so I think a lot of that is just the women have coalesced um, to, and not in some big movement of solidarity and demands, it's in a movement of elevating people's skill set um, and what value they bring to the, to the process. Mm-hmm. So you, um, you said that you, you kind of realized that you were good at this. Um, what, what, where was a point at which you kind of realized, you know, 
this is something that not only do I like to do, but I'm actually pretty good at it. I like it. I'm pretty good at making money, which is something that uh, my listeners care about as much as anything else. Right. Right. I think when I realized that my skill set is, is strategic planning and problem solving at its core. Mm -hmm. And that's what this business is. It is problem solving. Certainly Um, the minute you walk in the door, um, there's a problem to solve in this industry. Um, And then being able to strategically plan how to not let those problems become your nemesis and how to map your way towards that profitability. Um, You know, I said, I just learned to count ketchup packets. And once I figured out I needed to count ketchup packets, (laughs) I knew I finally understood this business. Um, We are a penny profit business. You know, I can sell you a hamburger and a fry and I can give you the biggest hand of ketchup. And I just took away all the margin to that hamburger and fry. Um, And when I realized how simple it was, but the simplicity of it is what makes it so difficult, um, then I, okay, I can figure this out. I know how to do this. I know how to run food costs like nobody's business Mm -hmm. because I'm willing to teach people. Um, I can't run food costs in multiple locations, but I can teach some jam up kitchen managers and general managers what that means and then reward Mm -hmm. them, you know, commensurate with their effort. Um, And now you get somewhere. Now you put some money in the bank. How many stores did you operate before when you when you sold? Seven locations. Okay, so you had seven locations and they're all in Florida? They're all in Florida. And I would tell McDonald's I am their premier boutique operator. I might be small, but I'm, you know, tall um, and produce some great results and um and loved that part of it. I loved the intimacy of our organization. Um, and I, I love to grow and I was on the path of when, where's my next restaurant, but I love the intimacy of, of being that small operator. And, you know, I know too much about what's going on, but I love that, you know, I pick up into the month. I want to see into the month. I want to do the, I want to do the work with you. Um, I don't want people to just to give me reports. Um, and that's a luxury I had as a small operator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, I've loved that ketchup packet story. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's a great point. You gotta, you gotta, you know, pay attention to the details um, in yeah. this business, especially lately. Yeah. So when you go through drive through and you ask for ketchup, if they don't ask you how many would you like, they haven't been to Tracy's school yet. Um, <laughs> so they need to ask you how many would you like as opposed to the handful. So yeah. Mm-hmm. You can give away the farming compliments. So. <laughs> so like uh, if you had like, you know, some pieces of advice, like, you know, like, you know, assume that there are some, you know, well, some young people who really want to get into the business, especially young women. What would be your advice to them to 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 get to that point where they're they're you know, they're a store owner and operator? Right. You know, I had a writing prompt that I was working on this week and it was, you know, what would I want little girls to to know about me or see when they look at me? Um, and the the first sentence that came out of my fingers on that prompt was that I was scared um, and that it's OK to be scared and it's OK to realize that you need to learn to know what you don't know um, mm-hmm. and then not be afraid to ask questions, but not be afraid to self-educate. I think the concept of self-help Um, in this industry is huge. You know, I'm a fan of whitewater river rafting. And one of the things they do when you start out on a multi-day whitewater river trip is they ask you to demonstrate your ability to self-rescue, which means fall out of the boat and get back in the boat. 
And that concept has stayed with me from my first river trip. You've got to self-rescue. Um, there is no magic information booth that's going to show up. It's going to tell you everything you need to know. Um, you got to build relationships, you know, with your team, first and foremost, because if you don't have the team to do the work, you can't step away and do higher level work. And then when you're in a franchise system, that's a big piece of that puzzle. Having a seat at that national table um, and being able to influence things that happen systemically and throughout the whole system um, really elevates being able to do that work with deep meaning. And that's what's going to sustain you, in my opinion, as a franchisee and as a woman franchisee. That's what's going to elevate you is continuing to craft and create those opportunities for national exposure and national leadership. Um, you know, I was the lead of the national recovery team for COVID. Mm. Um, we put together a recovery team within the system, and it was all people who had disaster circumstances. So for us, it was Hurricane Michael three years ago. Um, you know, the, the gentleman that's the operator with the Ferguson riots happened. So it was a, a coalition of people who've all managed disaster. Now, COVID, you know, it's obviously become a whole other animal. But doing that work and being able to lead at that level um, really changes the definition of your career as a franchisee. Um, and you need to seek that out, whatever, however deep or broad that is. But that is part of who you are in the franchise system. And if you don't take advantage of that, you're really missing a really rewarding big piece of your career. Mm -hmm. So you were, so you, you, uh, how, you led the, the brand's COVID response. I did. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was the lead for the recovery team. So and we thought multiple times we were gearing down and ready to sunset the team. And then there we went again. Um, you know, it's right. been the roller coaster. But, you know, we didn't dream. They, when I took when they reached out to me and asked me to do it, they said, you know, we're thinking it, it's a temp we're standing up a temporary team. Um, you know, we think it'll sunset in about eight weeks. And this uh -huh. was in March of 2020. So um, <laughs> we thought we were going to have this buttoned up and whooped and put to bed. So. Yeah, it's easy to forget. But man, remember that when we thought it was only going to be two months and this would all be over and then we would be just sitting there coasting nice and easily. Yeah, uh, yeah that didn't happen. Yeah. We had no idea, did we? Right, right. Did you, was there something that happened at Hurricane Michael that kind of led to your role on the COVID response? What, what happened with that? Yeah, sure. No, Hurricane Michael hit the Florida panhandle mm -hmm. in October of 2018. It was a Cat 5 storm. Um, it fundamentally decimated our community. It was like pictures I remember seeing of, you know, Baghdad or some somewhere in the Middle East is what my neighborhood looked like um, about five hours later. Um, so we we had total infrastructure collapse here, meaning we lost power, water, cell, um, access to roads. I mean, it was months before people had just basic utilities and then communication. When we lost the cell phone towers, which were bent over to the ground as if they were a straw, um, that really shut your world down. So just becoming a, a student of disaster response by definition of that, um, working to advocate for the funding that our community wasn't getting at the time, getting involved with Team Rubicon and getting some FEMA certifications, all of a sudden, all that's very real. Um, and then being able to apply that to something like COVID, um, you just have a different perspective. You know, it just gives you a different worldview. Yeah. What, uh, what, what happened to your stores? 
For our restaurants during mm-hmm. Hurricane Michael, we have four restaurants that have catastrophic damage and were closed for a while. Um, two out of town that weren't damaged and two that had, you know, the, the typical damage of you have food spoilage and takes forever to get a restaurant back on board. And then 17 days before the storm, we bought the Madison restaurants, as we call them. And then we also broke ground in a restaurant about 45 minutes from here. So all this is happening collectively um, at the time of the storm. So, you know, it, it's a proofing moment. It's a fireproofing moment where you really figure out what you're made of um, and you realize what you can tolerate and what you can endure and, and come out on the other side. So mm-hmm. I feel like in a way, you know, Hurricane Michael was the proving ground for for COVID, and now it's been the proving ground for my diagnosis. So you're just really going to have to come at me hard and fast to shake me up at this point. So. Right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I wanted to ask you about what 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 made you decide to sell? What happened there? Um, I think it, it, it evolved not only because of the culture we created in our restaurants, and we have a hashtag called Johnstone Difference. Um, And it's not just a hashtag, though. It is sort of the tenant of how we do business. And it is the, um, and our people are that Johnstone difference. And we were at such a high point um, in our restaurants, whether it was staffing, culture, everything. I felt protective of that for our Mm -hmm. folks. Um, They probably didn't feel that when I told them I was going to sell. It didn't feel that way to them. But that is part of what that was. And because of the national roles that I hold within McDonald's that are outside and above um, running the restaurants, um, there was no way I could adequately give my full-time best effort, as we call it, to my recovery and to treatment and do all those things. So, you know, I fundamentally decided I'm going to go out on a high. This is the time. There was something at first. It was a feeling and then it was a knowing. Um, And it was the ride home from MD Anderson. And I thought it's time. It Mm -hmm. is time. This is the right time. Um, This this is the catalyst to sell. My plan was another five years in the system. Um, Did not see this coming for sure. In fact, the week before we sold, I was standing in Nashville, Tennessee, receiving the Warren Award. Um, from our field office. So um, could not been, you know, more juxtaposed of what the conversations were, but we knew it was time. It was time. This was the right thing to do at this moment. And, and it's proving to be true because I'm sitting here talking to you um, and I don't feel like I'm not doing a hundred other things well. I'm doing what I do well. You know? All right. So you were diagnosed with cancer. And when, when did that happen? And October 30th was my, what I consider my real diagnosis. You know, when MD Anderson tells you you have breast cancer, okay, you're going to believe it at that point. It's really hard to believe. Um, It's hard to be told you're sick when you're not sick. And that's what it felt like. Like, what are you talking about? I really questioned him. I looked the doctor in the face and said, I don't think you're right. (laughs) Let's do this test again. But that October 30th and coming home that weekend is when I knew this is what we need to do. This is what Mm -hmm. I'm going to do. I'm going to take this to the bank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you would just, uh, if I uh, recall, I mean, you, you just built a new restaurant not that long ago, just completed that one. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you, you seem like you were, you know, really, you know, one of these growing franchises in the yeah, McDonald's. Yeah, system. For sure. For sure. And that, I think being protective of that growth and of that momentum, um, and of the culture we created was part of the decision to sell. Um, it's great for people to love and be willing to be with you on the journey. Um, but 
that's not what needed to happen with my restaurant teams. They needed a leader. They needed someone that could continue to lead. They're used to very high visibility leadership and probably some over communication. And I wasn't going to be in a position to continue that. And I knew that would eat me alive to not be able to provide that. And it, it was that kind of like when your parents tell you I'm doing this for your own good, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I got the same response of the eye rolls, like, okay, yeah, right. Um, but doing this for your own good. Yeah. It was a poignant day though, to have to tell them for sure. Right. So you, uh, did you accomplish that with the buyer, getting them into the hands of a, of a, a visible owner? I think so. You know, the Costa family who lives here locally and owns restaurants in the area bought them. Um, and I will tell you my experience in the transition and in the purchase, they could not have done more to make this easy on our people. And that told me all I needed to know, that they were making it easy for our folks and making them feel accepted and welcome. We really tried to redefine what it means to sell restaurants between operators like that. Um, we gave them access to our folks early on. We did a transitional video message to the community. Um, typically or often I see that when you buy restaurants, it's a little cloak and dagger. You know, you don't talk to the person's people until the night of closing. We did just the opposite of that. Um, and I think it served us well. Um, I think we created, you know, hopefully a, a little raise the bar on how to properly transition some restaurants between one family to the next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so tell me, like you, you uh, get back to a little bit to the operation stuff. You said you're really good at food costs and mm -hmm. teaching yeah. people food costs. Like, you know, certainly the last uh, year has been pretty difficult. How, mm -hmm. how does that compare in terms of, uh, from your experience, like how, you know, the, the operations last year were pretty tough. And how does that compare historically to what right, you're to using? The I'll tell you, the menu simplification um, was tremendous to mm -hmm. getting food cross under control if it wasn't. Um, just the sheer skews that you don't count um, in the ingredients that you're not missing or mixing um, made a big difference. Um, but it also became that much more critical, especially early on in COVID, when you're looking at days you're 40% down or more, um, all of a sudden one hamburger patty represented a much greater percent of your sales, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon that it did the week before. So um, it became much more critical to do that. Um, I think when you're working with people with food costs, them understanding the components of food costs, and people call it different things, you know, we, we call it food over base. Um, some people call it perfect food cost, meaning you sold everything you bought, but people understanding the math um, behind that and how they got to that number and what that represents. Um, and then definitely balancing quality and food costs because you can do the opposite and be so obsessed with food costs that you compromise your quality, which as we all know, when it comes to sales and transactions will not be your friend in the end. Mm -hmm. um, so I think teaching that balance, but um, really getting people to understand the power that they have um, and the influence they have on those dollars. Um, and then they own it. That's the key is getting them to own it. And your money is their money. And if you create a bonus structure that supports that, you get a whole different level of interest. And in how do we, how did you get that number? They don't just accept the end of the month number that the computer spits out or that you give them from back office. I want them to know how they got that number. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is your, what makes up most of your stat opportunity? It's yields. 
you know, so let's don't chase the theft of one box of something for four hours. Let's go back and start with yields and look at the percent of, of you know, yields that are out of range, what that's doing to your to your um, stat loss. So getting up underneath those things and getting them channeled to chase and look for the right things um, is huge. So you think that helped you through these the 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 the, the past years? Uh... Definitely, yeah, definitely. And having having people already have that skill set was big, um, and being able to do that, and then developing kitchen managers. There can't be one poor soul that knows all this. You know, um, more than one person needs to know how to do it within your organization. And then managing labor, as you well know. Um, at the beginning of COVID was kind of terrifying. Um, what do you do? You know, you can't lose these people. Um, and now we're on the opposite side of that pendulum of balancing, you know, hiring rates with, um, you know, lack of employees. So. Right. Right. How is that? Uh, how is that challenged the, the labor challenge from your perspective? You know, in my perspective for our organization is, you know, like our hashtag Johnstone difference, you know, we're storytellers at heart, I feel like. Um, and you've got to write a story that people want to be part of, you know, and there's got to be a place in that story at some point for them to be the hero. Um, and they've got to be able to have the opportunity to create value from within themselves and then have that value recognized. So I think our culture really kind of insulated us a little bit from some of what other folks may have have experienced. You know, they say, you know, people don't quit, you know, bosses or businesses, they quit managers, you know, that whole saying. Um, But the opposite saying is true. People don't quit because of their manager and they don't quit because of their organization. Um, And I think focusing on that side of the coin of building that culture that people want to be part of the story. um, And it's something that they feel good about. Mm-hmm. That's a really great point. I think like, you know, because managers are so important today and probably more important than they've ever been simply be, in part just because they're the ones that are going to make sure you're going to be able to get and keep staff and they're, right. you're going to be able to stay open all the time and, and right. things of that nature. Training good managers is so important today. It's not even funny. Yeah. And time consuming, you know, and they they possess such so much collateral knowledge. So making sure they have an environment that is healthy and sustainable um, is huge because to lose lose a key manager, it doesn't you know, it, it is a shotgun of holes, not a single hole. Um, it, it really punctures so many aspects of your operation. So protecting that and um, seeing about them. And just simply seeing about people goes a long way um, to having them be loyal to not just you, the individual, but to the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. All right. So how many how many years total is it where you were in the system? Then? Is it uh, um, 30 years? 30 years. 30 what was years. your favorite moment from those years? Honestly, the first time as a very young woman being asked to be on a team, and it was the operations team out of the old Florida region when that was how the you know the company was structured, is probably one of my favorite moments of getting that phone call mm-hmm. and realizing that I counted and that um, I had something to offer. And the validation of that was really a springboard for everything else I've done at the national level. Um, so when I think about that, there was a couple of key people that were part of helping me build my story back then. And I didn't even know that's what they were doing. You know, the first time I walked on the stage and spoke at a, at a regional meeting um, and I wasn't approved yet. 
Um, and I remember being so nervous that I wasn't credible to be up there telling these people what to do and how to hire and how to build a team. But I was, you know, and I think those moments like that, those points of validation are forever part of who I am. Super. Tracy, this was wonderful. Really, really yeah. appreciate you joining me on the podcast this week. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Kimberly Kazmarek. Artwork by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. 